Dear Heavenly Father, as we open up Jonah again tonight, Lord, I pray we would learn much from the life of this man. Father, You have given us Your Word and all that's written in it so that we might know You and we might understand You and Your expectations and nature and character. And so often, Father, You plan to bring us that knowledge through the lives of simple men and women as reflected in the Scripture, Father. And You're gracious to show us all there is to know about these people that we can benefit from, not just their, their obedience, but also their disobedience, not just their successes, Father, but also their mistakes. And, and uh, seeing all of that, Father, we have such a clear reflection of our own lives in so many ways. And we pray, Father, that we could see that reflection tonight, where it uh, would be the case that we mirror Jonah in our own lives. I pray, Father, we would have opportunity to see those mistakes wherever they are and that we would learn from them and as well, Father, we would take encouragement by how You were so gracious in Your loving attention to Jonah and the way You brought him back to Yourself. We know, Father, that is Your pattern for Your children and we thank You for that as well. And we ask for encouragement as we study it. May we open this book, Father, with open hearts and open minds to Your, to your power and to the Holy Spirit's desire to teach us. May we bear the fruit, Father, that You intend. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, welcome back. Second week in the story of Jonah, the uh, man who refused to obey God's call. And when we last saw our hero, if I can use that word, he was sound asleep at the uh, sixth verse of chapter one, which was how far we got last week in case you were counting. Uh, He was in the steerage of this Phoenician sailing vessel, and all the while he's being tossed in this violent storm, a storm so violent, in fact, that Men who had been on the water, presumably for many years, were frightened to the point of assuming that without supernatural intervention they would certainly die. That's how severe the storm was. We know also in those early verses that this is a storm that came as a direct result of God's plan, of what God Himself was at work to do in bringing Jonah back to Nineveh, the place He had called Jonah, and the place Jonah was refusing to go because of his hatred for the Assyrians. And as Jonah is in this steerage, in this bottom hold of this boat, determined to thwart God's plan, or at least not to participate in God's plan, we heard this pagan ship captain, if you remember, coming down to take some of the cargo and bring it up to the top to throw it overboard, spies Jonah asleep under these circumstances, and he's quite sarcastically, in my mind, turns to Jonah and says, well, maybe you could pray to your God for some kind of relief. And we learned last week it was really just a perfect picture, perhaps the best picture yet into the, into the heart of this man Jonah for how selfish he was, for how callous he was, for how uncaring he was for the fate of these other men caught up in the middle of his spat with God. This is a man who flees from God rather than bring a word of mercy and repentance to the enemies of the nation of Israel, completely uncaring and selfish and with total disregard for the well-being of others around him particularly those for whom he cares nothing of. And before we get into tonight's text, I think it's worth mentioning something that you could have, we could have mentioned last week as we ended, in fact, as we looked at those verses. When the captain turned to Jonah and said, why don't you pray? I don't think he did it. I don't think he jumped up in that moment and said, oh, you're right, let me pray for you. My guess is he completely ignored that instruction because had he wanted to obey that request, what would he have prayed to God for? What would you, if you're Jonah, what do you begin to say to God under these circumstances? Jonah knew why the storm was there. And he knew how to stop it. Fundamentally, he knew how to stop it. 
What kind of prayer is he going to give to God under those circumstances that God would be willing to hear except the prayer of, forgive me, I'm going back to Nineveh? Really, no other prayer under those circumstances would have sufficed to any degree for God. And you know, there's a saying I've heard said, there's a time for prayer and then there's a time to get off your knees and do what God has told you to do. And I think in many cases, we pray perhaps beyond the point of necessity because we're still waiting for the answer we prefer. And in Jonah's case, it worked a little differently. I think he just refused to pray because he knew the answer and he wasn't interested in hearing it anymore. So I don't think he got up. I don't think he did anything. So as he continues to ignore the crew's pleas for assistance through prayer to his God, they decide that they're going to have to take matters into their own hands. And that's where we go now in verse 7. Starting tonight, Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Well, the crew decides at the point that they're at now in the midst of all this turmoil on the water and they're so desperate at this point, they decide that some god must be angry. The god of the sea or the god of something must be angry at someone on the boat. That's the only way they can rationalize their circumstances and they've decided it must be the fault of some individual on this boat to explain the circumstances we're in. So they decide they've got to find who this person is. And in order to do that, they rely on an ancient tradition or an ancient custom of throwing lots. Now, a lot is another word for essentially a die, like dice. And I'm not, to say, I'm not suggesting it looked exactly like the one you and I throw today, but it's the same idea. Some piece of wood or, or, or bone or whatever that's been carved a certain way, and they roll these things and they look for a certain outcome. So they're going to throw lots, we're told, to determine who was to blame. Now, the belief was this. The belief was that the God that these men worshipped, whichever God, whoever was throwing the dice, whoever they worshipped, they believed that that God would intervene supernaturally in order to produce a certain outcome on the die. And that result, by that result, the men could learn the answer to a question that they posed in advance of the throw. So they were, the closest analogy I can give you is the toy that some of you have seen or may even still own, where it's the eight ball and you, you ask a question, then you turn it up and you read the answer. You know, should I go to the Bible study again? Ask again. You know, should I go to the Bible study? Ask again. You know, that kind of a thing, right? Well, that's the basic principle here, only behind this act is the belief that there is a God in control of the outcome and He will reveal His will by how He allows the outcome to take place. So, what these men must have done was before they threw it, they devised or arranged a question in such a way that they could ask the question and the answer on the die would come out in such, a, in such a way that it would point to whomever on the boat was responsible for their circumstances. Now, we don't know exactly how they did that, but you can imagine it for yourself. You know, they might have said, okay, you're number one, you're number two, you're number three, you're number four. Let's see who's at fault. Or they could have said it some other way. Now, this practice, when it was done in a pagan setting, like you would find here, is an appeal to a false god that doesn't really exist. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, 
But it's every decision is from the Lord. So there's a biblical principle that says there's no such thing as luck. Those of you who may be um, interested in things of luck like gambling or uh, uh, bingo or, or card games for just the entertainment value of it, and I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong in that, ought to understand that there's a biblical principle that says there's no such thing as luck. People talk about God incidences instead of coincidences because there's really no such thing as luck or coincidence because there's no event on, on, on earth in the lives of any man that is not directly under the control of the living God. You know, some th- tend to think of it as, as a situation where God is too busy to be bothered in such minute detail. Oh yes, I know that when the World Trade Centers fell, God probably understood and had some... You know, that was somehow under His control because that's a big event. You, you certainly think He's getting out of bed for those events. But in terms of um, an event like this, where it's small and it's a minor event, just understand the Scripture's expectation for us is that we would always see every action and every event in our life from the minutia to the grand as being under His control and within His purview. And there's a common sense reason for that. I mean, we know Scripture gives us that. That, enough is, uh, that alone is enough. But there's a common sense basis for that. There's a, a line in a song that I enjoy uh, a Christian band sings, it says, uh, essentially, you cannot plan the end unless you also plan the means to the end. And that means simply this. If the end of the world is already planned, if we understand that God has already set out, that when the world ends, it ends in a certain day, in a certain way, with certain circumstances going on, there's no way He could achieve that end unless it's true that He has control over the means to that end over every single event that leads up to that. And the more you trace it back, the more you realize there's nowhere you can draw a line. I mean, he had to make sure all those people were born, just those people, no more, no less, all of them alive still on that day, not a day earlier, not a day later, all of them doing exactly what he needed them to do on that day. And that meant that their parents had to do exactly what they needed to do to bring those people into the world on a given day, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Everything had to happen in all of history in exactly the way God planned it, so that it could be a certain way on a certain day as He's designated it. You cannot plan the end unless you also plan the means to the end. Otherwise, it's random. So every detail, from the least to the greatest, must be by necessity under God's control or He can have no sovereignty over His creation whatsoever. It's an all or none proposition. These men are basically reacting to that insight, though they don't know the living God. They're throwing lots knowing that God is in control. And they're expecting him to answer them through that calling. God, by the way, gave the same practice to the nation of Israel. Did you know that? This is not merely superstitious behavior. God ordained it in many cases. Do you know the Day of Atonement, the day when the nation of Israel would see their sins forgiven on a national basis, involved a piece of that ceremony, as you remember from Luke, involved the scapegoat, the two goats, one to be taken to the altar for sacrifice, the other one to be let out of the city is the scapegoat. We studied that when we looked at the, the last week of Jesus in Jerusalem. How did they know which goat was going to be the scapegoat and which one was going to be the one sacrificed at the altar? The Levite priest was to throw lots. And according to how the lots turned up, God said that would be the way by which he would designate which goat was to leave the city. Furthermore, if you look in First Samuel, you hear that Saul, when it's told to him that God is angry because somebody broke the vow of remaining without food while they were fighting the Philistines, at that point... Uh, if you remember the story, Saul's son, Jan- uh, Jonathan, decides to eat something. And because Jonathan had violated that vow or that order from Saul, 
God will not answer Saul's word. So Saul says, we're going to throw lots to determine who's the one that broke the vow. And before it's over, they determine it was Jonathan, sure enough. Again, that outcome had to have been God at work or it wouldn't have arrived at the right person. So the point is God, at work, God works through this process on occasion and He has actually ordained it under certain circumstances. And Proverbs tells us that every time those lots are thrown, God is in control. Can this be taken too far though? I mean, could I see you all rush out now to the, to the casinos in Louisiana and start throwing your quarters in saying, well, God's in control, so this is a godly thing to be doing. Well, you better be sure that God has commanded you to do that before you take that action because it's just as easily a test And God will not be tested, remember? A test of God is to presume God's uh, obligation to act in a certain way. It would be equivalent to Jesus when he's on the the pinnacle of the temple with the enemy, with Satan. And Satan says, throw yourself off, because after all, the Scripture says he won't allow any harm to come to you. And he says, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Because to jump off the top is to presume that God intends to save you. There's no doubt he can, but you're presuming what he chooses to do. And that's a test, and God will not be tested by us. Similarly, if we go and take our house and our life savings and all that we own and go into Vegas and say, He doesn't want me to lose, surely. He loves me. He wants me to win. I'm going to put it all on red. See what happens. Well, you're testing God. Unless He's given you clear direction to do so, you've presumed what He intends to do. And I believe as a matter of principle, He will not honor that kind of a test. Because to to even do it once is to send a confusing signal to you and I about what we should be doing. So I think that's a dangerous thing anytime you do it. So here the men do it. The sense I believe here is that these men were seeking divine revelation with an honest heart to know God's will and God answered that kind of honest desire with the correct answer. The lots we're told fell on Jonah. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I think it's clear they fell this way because God wanted them to know it was Jonah. It's not luck, in other words. It's not coincidence, as I said. It doesn't exist. I almost get the picture of God standing nearby the scene while they throw lots and kind of going like this to the men. It's Jonah. It's Jonah over here. Then the lots fall to Jonah. They begin to interrogate him. Now, they ask him a series of questions here and you have to picture the scene, right? The boat is doing this. There's a roaring sea. I I kind of picture a hurricane-like moment. Like those weather forecasters that are standing there. They're the poor guys that always get sent to the storm scene. I don't understand that. You know, and they're blowing like this and the rain's pelting them. They've got Jonah in a moment like that and they're asking him the questions that you saw in the text. Now, before we look at the questions, though, did you notice something else here about how the text is setting up a contrast? You're going to see this so much over the next two chapters. But there's a contrast being built here. Did you see the beginnings of it, even in this one moment? Because we've already talked about how Jonah the man who knew God, the prophet of the living God, how this man was probably unwilling to pray back in the hold of the ship when the rest of the crew is desperately seeking some kind of divine intervention. Now you've got a bunch of pagan men who, when they find themselves in a difficult situation, what do they do? They seek divine revelation. Now, I understand throwing lots and praying may not seem like an equivalent in your mind, but functionally it was. On the one hand, Jonah's trying to ignore God, paying no attention to Him. These men are seeking help from any divine source they can, and they finally resort to lots as a way of trying to understand what the gods of their world are saying to them. Pagan men willing to seek divine intervention and revelation. Jonah unwilling to do, though, do that. And we're going to see that contrast continue here. These ungodly men, we're told, as they seek divine revelation and receive it, look what they do. They heed it. They have no question in their mind. They get the answer. It's Jonah. Okay, Jonah, what's up with you? 
a clear sign that they took the answer at face value and received it and acted upon it. You see the contrast with Jonah in that, don't you? Jonah hears the word of the God, the word of God, in a clear way. What does he do? He ignores it. And in fact, he goes to the extent of running away, of disobeying it. These men are on opposite ends in terms of how they're living out their life, and yet Jonah should be the one who's doing the right thing. If anything, these are the men that should be ignoring the true living God. There's a a distinct contrast in their lives starting to play out before us even now. They ask a series of questions. I want to go through them with you in order. Look at the first one. They ask, on whose account has this calamity, or the word in Hebrew means, or evil, on whose account has this evil struck us? The first assumption is that Jonah is the recipient of a curse sent against him by some enemy. So their first assumption is not that he did something wrong. Their first assumption is somebody doesn't like you and they're coming after you. They've, they've cursed you. They've asked for some kind of, of, of spell to be cast against you. Remember, these are pagan men. They had any number of superstitious thoughts of all kinds of pagan rituals in their mind. They don't know in what direction this has come. They know he's the focus of it, but that doesn't automatically mean he's the one at fault. So their first question is, do you know who could be out to get you? What's going on? Who's got something against you? Why has this come against us? Uh, Basically, who did you upset? That might be another way to look at the question. They follow that question with, what do you do? I mean, where are you from? What, What kind of people are you from? Tell us a little bit about your background. What they're really doing here is they're trying to piece apart the circumstances and look for the the smoking gun. They're looking for that one clue that will help them resolve the problem. Because what they're really worried about here is the fact that it's Jonah doesn't help them. Their end effort, their end purpose in this is to stop the storm. They assume that they can't stop the storm unless they appease the God. The only way they can appease or undo the spell or whatever it takes, the only way you're going to do that is to cut to the issue of what caused the God to be upset in the first place. They're working their way through a somewhat logical process to understand why they're in the circumstances that they're in. Now, I don't know if Jonah gave any answers to these questions. They're certainly not recorded in the text. But he finally answers the last question. He says, I am a Hebrew. And I think this part of the answer was probably not very newsworthy to these guys, because remember, they picked him up in Joppa, and Joppa is a Jewish port. But the next statement did get their attention, to be sure. He said, I fear the God that controls the sea and the dry land. The word in the Hebrew that Jonah uses here for uh, fear is yare, Y-A-R-E, which is literally translated fear, no surprise there, but it can be used in Scripture either to mean fear in the classical sense or reverence. And I don't know in which case it's meant here, but I believe it's meant more in the sense of truly fear God. This is a whole atmosphere of fear. There's, an, there's palpable fear on their part. There's obviously a concern on their part for their own lives. That's why they're going through this whole process. Jonah doesn't necessarily share in that. He's, he's pretty callous and oblivious to it all. But he wanted them to understand that his fear was not in these circumstances. His fear was of a living God. So they're told that he fears this God. And then he adds this other piece, which must have just really caught them off guard. I fear the God that made the sea. I fear the God that made this water. And to that, we're told, the men become extremely afraid. Because what they remember is, they remember what he told them earlier. Now, we're not clear from the text if this is something he told them when he got on the boat, and they just kind of forgot it, or if it's something he's just told them now in this moment. 
But whenever it happened, he told them, by the way, I got on this boat because that God wanted me to do something I didn't want to do and so I'm running away from him. Oh yeah? That's what you're doing? The, the light bulbs come on at the same time above the heads of all these sailors as they hear this because here's, here's the thing they last wanted to hear. You, are, in fact, are the problem. It's not just that somebody else is out to get you. You're the one that the storm is designed to get. And it's because the guy who made the waters doesn't like you. So we're, help, we're hopeless now. At least that's their thinking. How do we solve this problem? You know, there's more irony to be found in this moment because here's the prophet of God who knows God, knows His power, understands what He's capable of doing, and He's saying that He fears the God of the sea and He says it probably in a very calm way. Meaning, He doesn't actually show any fear. He's not actually afraid in the moment but he's saying he's afraid of the God that's causing all this calamity. And he's, meanwhile, doing the best he can to ignore the storm and to ignore God. And then at the same time, you have these pagan men who don't know God personally, showing great fear for him or of him. So the ones who don't know God do fear him. The ones who do know God don't fear him. Complete backward situation here again. And then it probably worried these men all the more when they heard, of course, that God was the God of land and sea. Because in the Phoenician culture, they worshipped Baal, basically, which, who was a god of the sky, the god of the sun and of the sky. He was the one they prayed to for rain. He was the one they, they saw in control of life by virtue of the sun being such an important part of life on earth. And when they heard that this was the god of the sea, this was their breakthrough because now they had figured out it wasn't their god who was against them. It was this guy's god who's against him. We're just a byproduct of their fight. I mean, the picture is starting to be drawn for them in a very clear way. So, naturally, they asked Jonah the question that we have all personally been asking ourselves probably since verse 2 of this book, which is, Jonah, how could you do this? How did you think this would work? Because here's irony again. What Jonah had refused to accept, these men understood instinctively. If you make the God of the sea angry... Don't try to escape from him by getting on a boat going out to sea. You see, the, you see the problem with that? Don't make the God of the sea angry and then get out on the sea. That's a bad thing to do. You know, the last thing you want to do is go where he's in control. Now, what, of course, these men don't realize is he's the God of the sea, land, air, and everything. They simply see it as a simple cause and effect relationship. They don't realize he couldn't have run anywhere. How ironic that the man who knew God well, far better than these pagan Phoenicians have ever known him, couldn't appreciate the futility of his actions, but they could. They could instinctively say, you're doing something stupid, and Jonah never, it never occurred to Jonah that that was the wrong thing to do. So then in verse 11, they say to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. You have to have a heart for these, sailor, these sailors at this point, because at, at this point, they finally discovered the source of their trouble. They realize they have a problem, and they've got the god of the sea angry at a man on their boat, and there's not a lot of hope here for what they can do to solve that problem, except turn to the man who worships this god and ask him, what is it your God wants us to do? What, you know, tell us. What will make him happy? Now, if the problem had simply been that Jonah had failed in you know, some kind of prayer or sacrifice or ritual, they're hoping he will tell them that. 
But he's not going to give them that. I mean, there is no way he can give them that. And he's not about to give them that. They say, what do we do? And his response is, and it sounds very self-sacrificial, sounds very selfless, doesn't it? Just throw me overboard. I'll take it for you. I'll take the bullet for you. Throw me overboard and you guys will be fine. Jonah explains his answer by admitting that the storm has come upon them because of his disobedience. So that's why he knows he has to be thrown overboard. It's nice to see Jonah finally own up to the responsibility, but I don't want you to be fooled by his answer. There there is nothing self-sacrificial about this answer. He isn't having a change of heart here. Jonah didn't say the obvious answer. What's the obvious answer? The obvious answer is, he's mad at me because I won't go to Nineveh. All right, turn around, I'll go to Nineveh. That's the obvious answer. He doesn't give him that one, does he? He says, throw me overboard, which is a bizarre answer. Throw me overboard. The problem is that he's just as obstinate here as he has been from the beginning. And this actually confirms what we said last week. He'd rather die than see the Ninevites saved by God. Death is an acceptable outcome for Jonah under these circumstances. Remember we said that last week when he's in the hold of the ship sleeping? Either the storm is just designed to annoy him to get him to go back, in which case he'll just ignore it, or it's designed to kill him because he doesn't go back, in which case he's fine with that too. Now he's just trying to force God's hand with respect to his own life. He's going to let these men throw him overboard, knowing it will calm the seas, he believes, and getting his way as well, dying without having to help the Ninevites. That's how selfish this guy is. He knew what was going on, and up till now he's done nothing to stop it, nothing to help, not even willing to inform these men of what he knows, and he's shown absolutely no love and no respect for these men, callous disregard for their well-being. And at this point, he takes it a step further. I want you to see that for a minute. Because what he's about to presume upon these men is that they will murder him. He could have jumped. You know, there's nothing holding him to the boat. No, he doesn't want to jump. He wants them to throw him. He would rather presume upon these men the burden of killing him than to have the you know, decency, if you will, to do it himself, if that's what he really wants to see done. I have uh, friends I know who live here in San Antonio who had the unterrible experience of seeing this kind of thing happen in their own life, where they were driving home one night, and as they're driving on, they're exiting the freeway, they take an off-ramp, and if you know how freeways are built, typically once you get into the off-ramp, the barriers are such that you really are committed. You're not going to you can't, there's no shoulder to the off-ramp. You're in a narrow passageway. And they're driving along at night and they leave the freeway. They're traveling 50-something miles, 60 miles an hour still. And as they come down this channel, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, this, this woman jumps the barrier in front of their vehicle. Now, she times it in such a way that there's no hope to avoid her. They can't get out of her way. They certainly couldn't stop in the moments before they saw her. And they kill her as they hit her. Now, that was clearly not a fault of theirs. The woman did this to commit suicide. But what she did in the process of taking her own life was mentally scar the poor lady driving this car for life. I mean, it's the height of selfishness in how she chose to carry out that act. And I think you're seeing Jonah presume the same kind of selfishness here upon this crew. In verse 13, there's a little curious detail. Look in verse 13. As they make every effort to bring Jonah back, we're told, the storm gets worse. These men, men who did not know the living God, who did not know the love of God in the way Jonah did, did not know the mercy of God, these men are so afraid and so respectful of this unknown God and so respectful of human life even, 
that rather than listen to this man's nonsense about throw me overboard, they start to work the solution in the obvious way, which is we'll just take you back to land. We don't have to kill you. Let's just get you home and he'll deal with you once we get there. And then the curious detail, while they're trying, the storm gets worse. Now that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't we expect that as these men make an effort to return Jonah, that God would ease the storm and not make it worse so as to allow them to get Jonah back? I mean, isn't that the point of the storm? To get him back so that he would go to Nineveh? Why make it harder on the guys to let Jonah get home? Well, consider something I mentioned last week. I asked the question last week, why was God so intent on using Jonah to declare mercy to the Ninevites? Particularly after Jonah fled in the way that he did. Why not just let him go? Why not go after somebody else who would obey and head to Nineveh? The answer I gave last week was, first, that the calling and the gifts of God are irrevocable, and that's true. But there was another answer I didn't give you then that I I waited to give you now. I only gave you half the answer. The other half of this answer is that God was was at least as interested in changing Jonah as he was in changing the city of Nineveh. This is the pattern God uses throughout Scripture. If you've studied the Bible much, you've seen this at work many times. You know, we'll often read about God at work in some circumstance in history, but if we're not careful, we'll overlook the fact that God's primary purpose is often different than the one we may have assumed by reading the story. In this case, God's desire is to bring repentance to the Ninevites. Yes, sure enough. But even more importantly, God wants to bring repentance to Jonah. Because God is working on Jonah's heart every bit as much as he's prepared to work on the Ninevites' heart. And to explain how God does a work in us and through us by his call on our lives, Jonah now will stand as an example for all of time of God at work in that way. That in other words, while whatever happened in Nineveh benefited the Ninevites and maybe the next generation and who knows where it eventually went, we know it did not have the historical purpose of converting Ninevites forevermore to be God's loyal subjects. Because it was only about 60 years later that they ride into the northern kingdom and haul off the entire nation captive and distribute the Jewish nation for the rest of of this age. In other words, they they remained enemies of Israel despite this momentary reprieve. So God's ultimate purpose in bringing repentance to the Ninevites was not culminated by the Ninevites' repentance. Its ultimate purpose was in allowing him the opportunity to work through a man who, as a prophet of God, should have known better, but clearly didn't. And not only is he working on Jonah's heart, he's also going to be working on yours and mine by virtue of how we read this story. So it stands as a testimony for the ages afterward as well. If God were to allow these men in this boat to return to Joppa successfully with Jonah still in the boat and Jonah still unrepentant, then he would not have accomplished anything. Yeah, Jonah physically, he'd be back on land. whoop de do. But Jonah spiritually, the same old Jonah that was asleep in the bottom of the boat. The same disobedient man that got on the boat in the first place. So what God is prepared to do is allow Jonah to make his way back to land, but only when his heart is turned back in preparation for the work that he was called to do in the first place. So to allow the men to just row back with an unrepentant Jonah on the ship really hasn't solved any problem. All it's done is remove the storm from these men's lives. So perhaps if Jonah had made it back to Joppa under these circumstances... Maybe he would have even been forced to reach Nineveh eventually through some other series of circumstances. And maybe he would have even been forced to declare what God wanted him to declare had he reached Nineveh. But his heart would have never been changed. You you know this is apparent, right? If you have a disobedient, rebellious child, 
does it make you feel satisfied if you succeed in forcing their behavior to concur with what you've asked them to do? Does that really solve the problem? No. If I have to force my children to do what I ask them to do through intimidation and threat, then I've lost. I mean, whatever it is I probably needed them to do, it would have been easier if I just did it myself anyway at that point. The whole point in the request was an obedient response. And if the obedient response doesn't find its home in an obedient heart, then the outside action is just a show anyway. Who cares? It's no different between you and I. I mean, between us and God, I should say. If our lives look like we are obedient, but our hearts are not, we're not fooling anyone but ourselves. But God knows the heart, and God knows an obedient heart. This is why when Paul talks to the church in Rome in chapter 2 of the letter to the Romans, he talks in stark detail about the fact that he who is a Jew is the one who is a Jew inwardly, who has a circumcised heart by the Holy Spirit, not a Jew outwardly by living a life of rules and law. It is not sufficient that we would reflect him outwardly, but that we would know him inwardly. Jonah here is the great, great example of that. Were Jonah to get forced back to land, forced to Nineveh and the like, God's accomplished nothing in Jonah's heart. So the men eventually reach a point where, despite his lack of compassion on them, they fearfully toss him overboard, throwing him into the sea. And we're told that immediately the sea stops raging. I don't know about you, but this scene starkly reminds me of the scene in the Gospels where Jesus is in the boat on the Galilee and the storm is raging and the disciples are worried. And at some point he stands up and calms the sea. And it goes from storm to nothing in a moment. It's hard to imagine that. It's hard to imagine that. We don't understand that. We've never seen it in our own lives. And I have to think these men had a similar moment where an amazingly devastating storm went to nothing almost as Jonah's body hits the water, which is clearly a supernatural act. One scholar wrote, The book of Jonah contains within its few pages one of the greatest concentrations of the supernatural found in the Bible. And yet, it is significant that the majority of them are based upon natural phenomena. There's a principle in theology called the conservation of miracles. It's a principle that says that when we see God at work, it is more often the case that He performs that work through natural means. The conservation of miracles. He is not beyond the ability to do things supernaturally. Clearly he does, like parting the Red Sea, as an example. But so far, it is so much more the case that he will perform his work in this world using natural means. Things that you and I might not readily attribute to him if we weren't watching or paying attention. That that is his preferred means of accomplishing his work. So, what did these men do in response to what they saw happen? Well, exactly what we would have expected them to do. The men see the result... And then they turn and it says they offer sacrifice to God and they make vows. Now, we can't be sure what was going on in these men's hearts, but I I want you to at least consider with me the possibility that given the focus of the narrative, how this narrative has been building and how it's been illustrating where these men really are compared to Jonah, I think it's likely to assume that these pagan men came to a a faith in the living God in that moment. And their actions reflect that to me. They make sacrifices to this God, which was the way they interpreted worship. That's how they thought of worshiping God. And they made a sacrifice to Him and they made vows. I believe the word vow here is a direct, relation, a direct reference to the fact that they would basically swear off all other gods and choose to follow this one now. Made a vow toward Him in that way. It's my, it's my view of what they were doing, though that's debatable because it's not given specifically in the Scripture. And then in verse 17, one of the most famous 
and one of the most loaded verses in all the Bible. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 1 then ends with this amazing, incredible, unbelievable, downright weird turn of events. Because think about what you've been seeing up to this point. Up to this point, if you didn't know where the story was going, and pretty much everyone did, I know, you could go along with what's been happening without a whole lot of trouble. I mean, as you think about the events, you, you know, it has a certain sense to it. It kind of fits. Because you have this man who hears from God, and then he disobeys God. Then the God gets angry, and the God strikes the man. And then, just as the story is climaxing around this point, then you hear, oh, and man is swallowed by a large fish only to remain alive for three days and three nights. It just seems like out of nowhere. We take it maybe easily because we've heard it, but really, it's the, very, it's the weirdest thing in the whole Bible to me. Of all the things God could have done, he swallows Jonah with a giant fish. And all by, this, all by itself, this verse raises so many questions. And for many folks, it raises a lot of doubts, too. And we're going to explore some of these questions tonight briefly, but we're going to save most of them for our uh, discussion next week. But first question that might come to mind is, what kind of fish can swallow a man in this way? I mean, is this a natural event? Or is this just purely supernatural? God created some special creature, one of a kind, you know, had it re- ready just for this moment, used it once for Jonah, and we've never seen it since. Or is this a normal fish that's in the sea every day, and God just appointed it, as the Scripture says, to do this work in this moment? Well, let's start with the text. The uh, words here for great fish in Hebrew, gadal dag, they mean big fish. The words are used about 18 times in the Bible. They're always used to mean fish. All right, so there you go. There's no Hebrew word, by the way, for whale found in the Bible. And this is also not the same word used for sea monsters or dragons like there are in the book of Job, for example, that talk about strange underwater creatures. That's not this word. This is just big fish. What I think it's being used, though, the way I think it's being used here is in a generic way. In a generic way, a generic sense of just some big swimming sea creature. I don't think it's being used in the biological sense, such as to distinguish fish from mammals. Uh, you know, we talk like that today. I don't, I don't think that was implied by the text at all. Which means it could have been a fish. It could have been a whale. It could have been a shark. You know, it could have been uh, perhaps something unique. But it doesn't have to be. In light of all that we've read up to this point, my, my assumption is that it was probably just a very normal fish used by God for some special purpose. There have been stories of uh, some species of whale and shark large enough to hold an entire man's body in the stomach, uh, you know, swallowing him whole, in other words. Uh, I don't know of any credible stories where someone's had that experience and lived to tell about it, not, not for any length of time. But again, we know we're looking at something here where God works supernaturally through this fish to accomplish his work with Jonah. So the fact that Jonah could live for three days and three nights is a product of God's ability to preserve him under those circumstances. That's not a hard thing to understand. What was God's alternative? That's maybe the right question to ask about this point. If it's bizarre that God would use a fish in this way, what was his alternative to a stubborn man who would rather die off the side of a boat than go back and do as God's asked him to do? I mean, how many other ways could God have dealt with Jonah under those circumstances? Because his alternative, number one, is to leave him alone and he drowns. Well, Jonah wins if you do that. I mean, in the sense of how Jonah's battling God. No, that's not an option on the table. So he's got to preserve Jonah. The second choice is you do it in some way that just brings him out of the water. A boat finds him. He floats. Uh, you know, something of that nature. 
But think of it now from God's perspective. He's really got two problems. He's got the first issue of just preserving Jonah's life, but then he's still got the bigger issue of Jonah's heart, of disciplining this man, of dealing with his disobedience. So now when you look at it from that perspective, the belly of a fish is actually a pretty good place to keep Jonah. If your point is to preserve him while at the same time giving him a taste of the consequences of his disobedience. I mean, the belly of a fish, that's, that's not a very comfortable place to spend some time. And that's, I think, a part of what's going on here. So while it seems a bit bizarre and out of left field, when you're in the water, that's what gets you, fish. And so all God has done is use the natural to accomplish his supernatural purpose. So the fish is probably some unidentified species of sea creature large enough to swallow a prophet and uh, suitable to God's purpose. To put it simply, he kind of jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. In fact, you could say that when he asked to be thrown overboard, he made a halibut decision. Because now he's going to flounder in the belly of this fish, kind of carping over his circumstances. Not even a soul nearby to comfort him. Not a perch to rest on. Well, next week we'll come into chapter 2. If you want a little homework, I don't do this much, you know, but if you want to do a little homework, there's a parallelism in this book that's really um, striking because it's so consistent throughout the book. It's done more than in most books, and that's why I said it's structured much like a parable for that reason. Look at chapter 2 as a whole, very short, as you would expect, and compare it back into chapter 1, and you'll start to see a parallelism that's very striking. And it's clear enough that what God is going to do in the time that Jonah, this quality time he spends with the fish, that he's going to bring Jonah back through his own circumstances in a way parallel to the ones that he subjected the men on the boat to. And you're going to see him reaping here a little of what he sowed on that boat with these men, at least in the sense of how his emotions and his circumstances, uh, how he responds and how he deals with those, how he experiences those in light of what he put the men through. It's a very interesting way God works, and, and we'll learn a lot about it for our own sake when we study it next week. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for the night. And Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to see Jonah, a man who we know is not the pinnacle of obedience, to be sure, but a man of faith who, like us all, had his shortcomings and at times, Father, preferred his will to yours and was stubborn in the face of your counsel and of your chastisement, Father. But, Father, we are thankful that when we are faithless, you are yet faithful. And you will pursue us, Father, and you will discipline us as a father disciplines his children because you do love us as children. And you have called us, Father, and those, that calling is irrevocable. And we praise you, Father, for that. For if it were up to us, Father, our disobedience would get the better of us, we know. And, uh, Father, we thank You that through the Word even we could see a glimmer of what it is like to be in disobedience to You and how You pursue and how those consequences can befall us. Father, I pray that perhaps that might be the motivation for some of us in here who have uh, felt a tug from our flesh to walk away from Your call, to do those things that we desire above what You desire. Let us look upon Jonah tonight, Father, and understand that we could be Him or we could learn from Him. And I pray, Father, we would learn. Let us come back next week according to Your will, Father, so we may continue in this study. And we thank You for the chance tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.